Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 59 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, what One admonition to lawyers is stay in your lane and any profession for that matter. We've talked about doctors and other experts and things on, on the podcast. Pat and I might be violating that a bit today as we cover three Supreme Court cases, including two criminal cases. And one hemp hill is, uh, as Pat and I were just talking about, is a very complex set of facts. And, and uh, But we'll dive in. And as a description of the podcast notes, we cover Supreme Court occasionally, and often they are very interesting cases. Uh, there, there really are uh, matters of, of huge import, and uh, sometimes the cases are very interesting. And so we've decided to take on three of those today for many reasons, including uh, the appellate courts in Indiana and Illinois have been relatively quiet. After, uh, after giving us a ton, they've given us nothing. Right, right. <laughs> And the other thing about these is, as we'll get to when we make predictions, sure to go wrong when Pat and I have predicted these other Supreme Court cases in the, in the past year, uh, they can be very difficult to predict uh, or more difficult just because there's can, an there's an inverse relationship between your ability to predict and the level of the court you're trying to predict because that's the, right. ver- the variety of the issues are so manifest when you get to higher level courts, you really can't tell where the thing's going to go. That's that's correct, and the, the other interesting thing is is Pat and I both listen to these oral arguments. But the the amazing thing and something that uh, I've always often marveled at is is these all three of these cases that we're talking about today had different lengths of time, uh, different interactions. But when you get the transcripts, if you look at the transcripts on the Supreme Court.gov, uh, all three of these are eighty nine pages uh, with indexes which is bizarre and they're usually in that range, which is whenever I go to look at one or, or want to uh, follow up with what I've listened to, they always seem to be in that range, which is bizarre. So uh, in any event, I don't know what, <laughs> you know, whoever's doing the, the, the reporting uh, does a pretty good job of, of making them standard size. So in any event, the first case today is Hemphill versus New York, a Sixth Amendment case that we'll get into momentarily. Second case today is Cameron versus EMW Women's Surgical Center. Um, it, it's related to an abortion law in Kentucky, but this case really uh, will disappoint those who expect this to be a precursor or preview of where the court may be heading on abortion cases. Uh, there's a couple cases coming up in November or December. I can't remember the dates. Uh, and this, this one has to do with questions of the Kentucky AG being able to intervene and questions of waiver of, of that same position. And as Pat and I have talked about on the show, and we'll talk about when we get to that case, um, this case does involve a change, an election that took place, and a change of parties in certain offices and, and things of that nature, which we've talked about, uh, the federal government changing positions often before the Supreme Court. The third case today is United States versus Zub- Zubida, Zubida, Zubeda. Zubeda. Thank Zubeda. You. Abu Zubeda. Is his Beta. is his is his eponym, yep. or a pseudonym? I should say pseudonym. Uh, and this involves a CIA location in Poland, or does it? 
or does it? <laughs> which which is bizarre. I mean, we'll talk about that. As Pat will explain, uh, several podcasts focus on the torture elements of this case, uh, but that seemed in some ways to be misguided based on the arguments and issues raised and discussed at oral argument. It really was about um, state secrets and, and, and locations of these uh, sites. With that, let's turn to Hemphill. This is the Sixth Amendment reared its head in Warden versus U.S. A different clause of that amendment appeared in another recent case heard by the Supreme Court. In this case, was Hemphill versus New York. Uh, the court heard oral arguments in this case uh, recently. This, this uh, case deals with the confrontation clause. And the question presented is, when, if ever, does a criminal defendant who opens the door to evidence that would otherwise be barred by the rules of evidence also forfeit his right to exclude evidence otherwise barred by the confrontation clause? Counsel for the defendant petitioner opened with this. A defendant cannot lose his right under the confrontation clause to exclude testimonial hearsay simply by making a legitimate defense based on admissible evidence. And that is true even if the hearsay the prosecution would like to introduce would supposedly contradict that defense. So at bottom, what you have in front of you today is a state law rule and a holding under Reed, the New York Court of Appeals decision, that says that a legitimate defense based on admissible evidence can forfeit the confrontation clause. And in this case, Hemphill was convicted of murder based in part on the hearsay testimony of another man, Morris, who admitted in and out of court uh, st in statements to having a different caliber of gun than the murder weapon present at the scene of the murder. This hearsay was admitted by the state. <laughs> he, and, and, uh, Dan did not misspeak. We're gonna, I'm going to detail this, but Dan did not misspeak just then. No, and it was it was uh, casings or or things at his house. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. <laughs> a different caliber gun than the murder weapon present at the scene of the murder. The hearsay was admitted by the state court after Hemphill admitted evidence that a cartridge with the same caliber of weapon as the murder weapon was found in Morris's home. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this very interesting Sixth Amendment case. Thanks, Dan. So, so I, I'm going to try. There's a couple things we need to start at baseline for those that may not be lawyers. The first thing is what is hearsay? Hearsay is a statement, uh, an out-of-court statement offered for the truth of the matter asserted. Now, what in God's name does that mean? That means a statement that isn't made in court in front of the jury or judge if the judge is the fact finder. That is being offered not for the purpose of what is contained within the statement being true. Now, sometimes statements can be offered for other purposes, and those can be out-of-court statements that are non-hearsay because they're not offered for the truth of what they contain. But this is, and then there are a slew of exceptions to hearsay, excited utterance, de dying declaration, all kinds of exceptions and, and all, all that. But this- my, uh, my, my evidence teacher at, at uh, my law school had the bookie joint exception, which um, I advised all my classmates and others never to use that because he yeah, on the bar exam or otherwise because it was one of the unlisted exceptions that he made up. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. There is no there, that, that turns out that one doesn't exist. So 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 here's what happens. You got two men, Morris and Hemphill. Hemphill is our hero in front of the Supreme Court. Hemp Morris and Hemphill were both present for a 2006 murder. There's a fight and a stray bullet kills a child, okay? So three witnesses identify Morris as the shooter, and the police search Morris's home and find a 9mm cartridge and ammunition for a 357 revolver. Those are two guns that don't go together. 
Right. Nine millimeter is typically a semi-automatic, and as you just heard, the three fifty-seven is a revolver. So, okay, they arrested Morris, and he was indicted for the murder and for possession of the nine of a nine millimeter handgun that they didn't find. But the prosecution the prosecution ended in a in a mistrial. So they find a cartridge. A nine millimeter is probably amongst the most common cartridges of handgun in in the country. Uh, so finding a nine millimeter cartridge isn't all that exciting, but that's what they did. So they off. So Morris, that trial ends in a mistrial. And instead of trying him again, they offer Morris a deal. Morris pleads guilty to having a firearm, the 357 at the scene. And the state would request that the murder charge be dismissed. Morris accepted the deal. Uh, the state charged Morris with possessing the 357 at the scene of the shooting rather than the nine millimeter established as the murder weapon. The prosecution so the prosecution lacked sufficient evidence to establish that the possession of the 357 revolver. So Morris supplied the evidence with his own statement. Essentially, you typically can't be. Uh, um, you know, I had this come up many years ago when I was a public defender my last semester in law school. They usually have to have more evidence than just your statement, right? Um, and here, the, he just consented to it, just not to have to go through the murder trial again. All right, fast forward to two thousand nineteen, and, and probably a smart move because. Much lesser charges, much less time. I mean, it's two years. Just, or just something take. Got. Oh yeah, yeah. take it. Just, just not take risk, it and, not roll the dice. Exactly. Take it and be done with it. In 2013, so fast forward 2013, the state charges Hemphill, the petitioner in this case, who was also president at the fight uh, where this murder occurred. And at trial, Hemphill listed a testimony uh, from the police that the police had recovered this nine millimeter cartridge from Morris's nightstand that matches the caliber of the bullet that killed the child. And in response, the prosecution sought to introduce evidence of Morris's statement that he possessed the 357. Now what the 357 has to do with the murder of someone with a nine millimeter, I have no earthly idea why that's relevant. I have no idea, but they introduce it and Hemphill gets convicted. He gets convicted with this, this evidence and he gets sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Now, maybe Hemphill did it. I don't know. There's many no, nine right. millimeters running around. Maybe he had a nine millimeter. But based on what we understand, this evidence of what Morris had, a gun that wasn't the caliber that killed the child, somehow is relevant and probative to convicting. <laughs> so the question now is, putting those bizarre facts aside, because they just don't make any sense, is... The thing about the confrontation clause and the thing about the reason why we why we have the rule against hearsay is because you can't cross-examine it. It has to be have some indicia of reliability, which is why the exceptions exist. But in general, if the person isn't there to testify, you can't you can't confront the witnesses, which is one of the rights that a defendant has under the Sixth Amendment, among several others. But that's one of them. You get to confront the witnesses, you get to ask them questions, you get to be in the room with them which is one of the things that happened during the pandemic when criminal defendants couldn't be in the room with their accuser. Zoom wasn't a good substitute, uh, right. courts held. And so, no, that didn't that didn't satisfy the confrontation clause. Confrontation means confrontation. You get to be there. Uh, and so how do you cross-examine this? Now, there's apparently this rule, this rule of evidence in New York State Court that if the point, if the defendant puts forward an affirmative argument, the other side gets to bring in hearsay because they quote opened the door to the otherwise inadmissible hearsay, which is just a bizarre rule. 
Um, just simply because I present evidence doesn't mean now you get to present inadmissible evidence that, frankly, isn't evidence. That's the whole point of it. It's not evidence. Uh, we want to only put things that are in front of a jury that are reliable and hearsay by its very nature is unreliable. Uh, and and here has the double whammy of being not subject to cross-examination because the guy isn't there uh, to be cross-examined. Uh, so the, 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 I, I see this being, I'm going to skip the predictions, go sure to go wrong. How this doesn't turn out a 9-0 in one of their lightning speed opinions is beyond me. But I, I I just can't understand. I just don't get this one. I understand why they took it if they rule in the way I think they're going to rule. But I just don't see how they how this case uh, doesn't come out for the petitioner. Dan, what what am I missing here? Or are we missing? I, I, are we both missing something? No, I, th- I think you're right on. I mean, there was some some discussion at the oral argument about you know other cross examination and you know impeaching witnesses and stuff of things that are outside and some some hypotheticals about you know the temperature on the day was 70 degrees at 72 of the prior rays. Um, I agree with you. You know, the the, the um, uh, it does it, it does seem like this will be a lightning decision a nine zero, but. But so, some of the questions you, you you again never know with the Supreme Court and where these where, where the nine are coming from, and on criminal justice cases, you know, for again those that don't really pay attention, much different than the social lightning rod or other cases in the especially in the constitutional arena because Kagan, Sotomayor, and even Breyer, much more, you know, they're they're really been thinking through these things, especially defendants' rights and 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 these issues like Sixth Amendment, Pat. So. I, I do agree with you. I think it'll it'll be a uh, at least you know at least a, a six three or or seven two. But I, I expect this to be a unanimous, and maybe that's what they, they took it for because it is such an unusual rule. I can't imagine many states have any kind of rule like this that opens once you open the door. Uh, hearsay can it's then come into yeah, yeah. I, I, I really really kind of amazing, and it dovetails with a case we're not going to talk about at least not today, the Sarnayev case yeah. where. They let in, uh, you know, that's at the sentencing phase where hearsay can come in. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the the rules of evidence are much much uh, lightened, especially especially in favor of the defendant in a capital case at the sentencing phase. He can bring in damn near anything he can come up with yeah. uh, for uh, for uh, for Eighth Amendment reasons. Um, yeah. But at the at the merits stage, for, you know, on a on what is the equivalent of a capital case because uh, we're looking at life in prison here for a murder. You you gotta have actual evidence getting getting admitted. Now you, you're you know one speaking of the lineup of the court certainly Sotomayor, Breyer, uh, uh, the the more the, the the justices that are looked as more as uh, left of center, they are oftentimes joined in that by Justice Gorsuch in particular, and then on yep. the other end of the spectrum you have Justice Alito. Yep. Uh, which we're gonna talk. You're gonna see when we get to the Zabeda case. Interesting where Alito comes in on that one when he, he but he is if if this is if this is there's a dissent it's going to come from him and almost every yep. criminal justice issue he it's quite a thing for him to side not side with the government um, right he was uh, he was if I remember correctly he was at least a U.S. Uh, assistant U.S. attorney if not a U.S. attorney in in New Jersey prior to uh, being was. on the appellate court so he is very very pro government in criminal justice issues. So uh, you can oftentimes hear him asking questions very favorable to the government to push back against questions asked by his colleagues. Yep. Um, and so 
uh, we'll be interesting to see where, how he ter- comes in on this. If, uh, if even he says, no, you can't do this. Uh, so with that, we'll take our first break and come back and discuss the abortion case that isn't uh, Cameron versus EMW. We're back for segment two of episode 59 of the Podium and Panel podcast to talk about Cameron versus EMW. And sometimes cases come in and you think they're going to be about one thing and they turn out to be another. And this is what has happened in this case that was heard recently. So this is a case that started out as a challenge to an abortion law in Kentucky. This case has nothing to do with abortion. It has nothing to do with abortion. It does not. They and, and oh, by the way, the the court has plenty of those. It has the Texas case. It has the Mississippi case. Uh, so it has plenty of those. And it will have uh, but plenty the, more, I'm sure. Is the and it will have North Dakota, it, South Dakota, other places are trying to be outdo each other. Yeah. Yes, they'll have plenty of that. But that's the underlying dispute. But this case is is where the Kentucky Attorney General, uh, uh, a Republican. He sought to intervene into an abortion case after the decision of the Sixth Circuit striking down the law and the decision of the Secretary of State to not appeal further. The circuit court denied the petition to intervene and the AG petitioned for cert, which was granted. The question presented is this, whether a state attorney general vested with the power to defend state law should be permitted to intervene after a federal court of appeals invalidates a state statute when no other state actor will defend the law. So if it, just so you understand the politics of this, as I said, the AG is a Republican. The Secretary of State, I guess I take it as a Democrat, and certainly the governor of Kentucky is is a Democrat. So they are not in favor of the law. They're not going to defend it. I, I think so the, the, the Secretary of State was a Republican, and then they had an election in 2019 or 21 that or 19 that flipped it. Right. That's what I mean, is yeah. that the person yeah. who made the decision was a Democrat right. and their and their uh, political party aligns with the governor who's not going to take it up. So the right. next person up is the go- is, is the attorney general. Well, that's at least what we thought was the question. The respondent has raised the issue of jurisdiction because the attorney general was previously a party and stipulated to be dismissed with an agreement to be bound by the judgment. The agreement did the attorney general did not appeal the district court's order that was disfavorable to the state striking down the law. And the respondent argues that he cannot now intervene. In response, the attorney general first says that there's a reservation of rights in the stipulation. And second, that in intervening, he's wearing a different hat. He's got hats uh, representing not his official capacity as AG in which he was sued, but as counsel for the Commonwealth itself. Um, This this case has gone far afield from the abortion restriction. um, And as we said, they've got plenty of those. Uh, Dan, tell us about this rather bizarre and interesting case, but really important because how uh, state officials can act to defend laws, laws that are favored by the left, laws that are favored by the right, doesn't matter. Um, how that works when you have elections and things and in, in, in different uh, constitutional s- setups in different states is, is really important. Sure, Pat. And as mentioned at the outset of this uh, podcast episode, Pat and I have talked about uh, the changes that occurred uh, occur every presidential uh, election when Obama came in and then when Trump came in and now when Biden came in. Uh, and there's 
discussions and and arguments of eleventh hour changes, um, as as we'll talk about, um, the um, th- that does happen, right? Because you know uh, the the Trump administration had certain views on certain issues, <clears throat> and then Biden came in and by executive order or by uh, briefs with the court, they oftentimes change. And so we've talked about that extensively. This involves the state. Um, and as, as an outset, Pat, um, th- this argument that it was a different capacity to me is, is, is very nuanced. And, and I'm still trying to think of that because of, in his capacity. So was the court. Well, I know. In his, <laughs> in his capacity as attorney general, he is the enforcer of the law. So how that was a different capacity that he, that he conceded well, on. he initially claimed, they initially claimed that they, he didn't have the right to enforce the law. And if I right. understand the, the politics cor- correctly, the AG who took that position is different from the AG that it is now. Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. So, so there was a change in AG and the yeah. initial AG said, you can't sue me. I don't have the authority to enforce this abortion law. Leave it to the secretary of state. Let, let this person right. do it. Secretary of state goes up and takes up the flag and runs. Right, and then this new AG gets elected, and he has a different view of his authority. He says, "Oh no, I can enforce this law." Right, and oh by the way, I get all he can enforce it, but I also am representing the Commonwealth. Sorry, it's just <laughs> yeah, and, and and again, it's 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 a question of you know, are you bound by your prior your predecessors, right? And there was argument during oral argument that that is should be in fact be the case, right? Because we you know the one thing about governments is we need a consistent continuum. So you, you can't, you know, if we have necessarily the, well, that person conceded something or they waived something, but now it's a new sheriff in town. And so I can do something else. Um, in any event, I, I think the justices were asking that. And like you said, Pat, while this case involves the, the Kentucky law about abortion, uh, that's the underlying, uh, as I mentioned, it's not going to be any precursor or preview to the abortion rights cases later in the term. This is really the question, again, of whether the Kentucky Attorney General can intervene to defend a state law. Um, and again, um, the Kentucky law deals with 11 weeks or greater, uh, but it's really about standing of the AG. And, and the, the petitioner, uh, Cameron, the AG, uh, said that uh, uh, open with two days after learning that another state official had stopped defending Kentucky's House Bill 454, the attorney general moved to intervene so the Commonwealth could exhaust all appeals in defense of its law. Um, the Sixth Circuit kept the attorney general out of court and made three uh, fundamental errors. Um, and it was, you know, uh, interesting opening. Uh, the court now, uh, as we've talked about, gives two minutes to, to, to talk about. Um, w- one of the concepts that was uh, uh, discussed here um was, was rule 24 and it, it's not exactly analogous to uh, the situation but the, this I, is this is federal rule of civil procedure 24 not right. fe- frap 24 right as in federal rule of appellate procedure so right. do you understand that folks there's two different sets of rules there's right. not really an intervention rule in the appellate procedure rules right. in the frap rules they're they're in the frcp rules the federal rules of civil procedure yep. so that's it, you know they, they, they but it's been analogized Right. Um, by courts where you people have tried to intervene on appeal, which is a very unusual procedure is, to say the least. And, and, and once again, as we talked about last episode, Justice Thomas opened up with that question. Uh, he opened He's up opened again. up all the questions. Every every, every, every week now. Every, every, every single uh, argument. All nine. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so, something uh, that we need to keep in mind here is, is uh, again, we talk about standards of review all the time. And Justice Thomas uh, said, look, we're, we're reviewing this on an abuse of discretion standard. So, you know, 
how did the did the court abuse its discretion by not allowing this intervention? And that's a you know as, as Pat and I have said you know an abuse of discretion. Great deference is given to the to the lower courts because it's an abuse of discretion. And you know did they abuse of discretion? In, in uh, this and in this case, it's the circuit court, not the district court, that whose discretion is alleged to have been abused. Yeah, um, which yeah. is a, a bit unusual too. Because uh, yep. usually, usually appellate courts aren't abu- aren't exercising any discretion. Right, they're they're, they're deciding a case and deciding whether somebody else abused their discretion. Uh, right. but intervention is almost always a question of discretion of the court to allow it to happen or not. And the question that is is any would any reasonable court have kept Cameron out of court? Right. Um. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe not. And and as we talked about this distinction of of uh, behalf of the Commonwealth of Kentucky versus the official role of Attorney General. Chief Justice Roberts opened with uh, the statement that I don't quite understand if that's different than simply representing the Commonwealth of Kentucky as its counsel, or if the Attorney General is intervening in his own capacity as distinct from the Commonwealth. I think as, as we talked about, Pat, that there, there's a lot of discussion in this uh, oral argument, kind of trying to figure this out. Um, um, and then as we talked about, there's a stipulation and Justice Sotomayor kind of hit on it uh, uh, early on in the appellant. She said, you said we can't um, uh, enforce, you know, uh, 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 you were served as the attorney general, correct? That's correct. Uh, you signed a stipulation dismissing yourself and saying that you would abide by the decision of the secretary of state, its litigation, and abide by whatever judgment was in, entered in this case would be bound by any final judgment in the action. Is that correct? And then the, the advocate said, that's correct. And, the, and she asked, did you appeal the judgment? No, we didn't appeal the judgment. Um, and then she goes on, you agreed to be bound by this judgment. You didn't appeal, even though you were a party. Are you telling me you're now willing to waive the sovereign immunity of the state? And then it goes on and on. And, and it's, it's she she really went at this hammer and tongs yeah. on the on the sovereign waiver of sovereign immunity. Yeah. So, so help me out here. What? Who cares if they've waived sovereign immunity in the ch- in the defense of their own law? What? What? What am I? What am I missing here? Who? Who well, cares? Have, well, they, have I, they waived it? Is the suggestion they've waived it for all purposes or just with respect to this statute? I, I'm really, yeah. tr- I'm really struggling with what the consequence of that would be. I am too. really didn't want to admit that they had they had uh, waived their sovereign immunity. I, I, I guess I, I don't too. understand this area. But, 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 but I don't fully understand the area either, Pat. But uh, yeah, I think one, one of the reasons for this line of questioning, again, was uh, part of the question that, that, that I just referred to and some of the other justices were asking is, you, you can't sue a state. So you, uh, this, is not, uh, this is not EMW or whatever, ECW versus the state of Kentucky. Like when, when we see these cases happen, it's, you know, it's, it's against the Secretary of State, George Ryan, when he was Secretary of State, or it's Jesse White. It's Cameron in this case, right? It's the Secretary of State of Kentucky because you can only act for that, and maybe that's the distinction again. Take, I, take, t- take, the, take Roe versus Wade. Who's Wade? Wade was the AG of Texas. Right, right. In, in, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Who's Casey? That was the governor of Pennsylvania. Right, you know, right. That's, you sue them in their individual in – their, not their individual in – their, in, their, in their capacity, their official capacity – in the office that they hold, um, yep. that's that's who these people are, uh, and you then enjoin them from enforcing the law. And the idea is, if you enjoin one, then everyone else gets the message. You can't do whatever it is they're not allowed to do, whether it's an abortion or some other kind of context. Uh, and, and I agree. Yeah, I, and I agree with you. I, I you know, um, I I, di- I just don't don't have enough. 
real expertise in the sovereign immunity argument because even Kavanaugh picked up on it and and several justices kept saying, well, you're sued in the in your capacity as attorney general and is there limited sovereign immunity waivers? So again, um, you know, just, like I, just yeah, I just don't get it. I don't either, but we'll, we'll see what happens with this case. But it's an interesting case because it does, as you said, Pat, um, it, it not only applies to Kentucky in this abortion case, but it applies to any any type of case, you know, that you, uh, any any uh, uh, situation. For example, in Illinois, there's, uh, uh, I understand some kind of similar law to Texas, but this has to do with, with assault rifles or something that, that I heard is is potentially in Springfield. So that case will be challenged, right? And then you, you theoretically could have a change in governor in Illinois or a change in, uh, in an office. And then again, someone stops defending it, right? And this happens, th- th- this is not a one-off in Kentucky. Uh, many cases that hit the Supreme Court, especially on, on big issues, whether it's transgender bathrooms or, or, or uh, same-sex things, all kinds of things. The you know politics in some states change right, and they're close, and they turn well, and, over. And, and and not only that, it can be even more specific than that. That the reason why the party changed is over this issue. Right, it can be because the people decided we don't like the position you took on this issue. Right, kick you out, bring in somebody else who takes a different position. Yep. And as Justice Breyer pointed out, they've got to be allowed to do this. Right, they've got to be able to. I mean, the people have to be able to change what their position is. When they've decided they don't like the position that the other people took, and sometimes it's on the very issue that the court is hearing, yeah, uh, they can't be stuck. No, nah, I, I think and, it's, a, it's Justice Breyer doing what he oftentimes does, being extraordinarily practical. Right. What is the practical effect of this? Well, this is the reality here. Yep. Um, and as I posted about it in, in my daily law bulletin uh, that will come out tomorrow. Um, if you really listen to closely, including, like you said, Breyer, I think, again, the majority is going to uh, find that, that Cameron can, in fact, intervene in this case because it is the practical solution to these types of issues. If not, then you you have laws in the you think they're gonna get past, You think they're going to pass the jurisdictional issue, though? I do. So I think I, if, I, they I, reach the, if they reach the question presented, I think Cameron's in good, is in good, in okay shape. Yeah. I'm not sure they reach that. Because I think that they've got a real problem on the jurisdiction. They they might. I, I don't know. I, I think they'll get beyond it though. Because if, if it was just jurisdictional, they could have just rejected the case. They, yeah, but they've done that before, and, and, I know. and they've heard they've heard it, and then uh, issued a procuring opinion dismissing it for lack of jurisdiction, and and gone on yeah. their way after having heard it. You know, maybe yeah. they wanted to hear. They certainly did that in say Frank versus Gauss. Yeah, uh, where they took the case, they they asked for supplemental briefing on the issue of uh, standing. And then they issued a procuring opinion, sending the case back for lack of standing. So we'll see. Uh, or for yep. more, for re- they remanded the case for more consideration of standing. So they've they've done that kind of thing before, and this would be they, the same, they have the same have. kind of vein. Yeah. All right. So with that, we will take our next break and come back with segment three: United States versus Zubeda. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three 
of episode 59 of the Podium and Panel podcast and our third case today, United States versus Zubeda. The question here is whether the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit erred when it rejected the United States' assertion of the state secret privilege based on the court's own assessment of potential harms to the national security and require discovery to proceed further under 28 U.S.C. 1782A against former Central Intelligence Agency contractors on matters concerning alleged clandestine CIA activities. And Pat, for, for those that have listened to And alleged to us, is in quotations because it alleged. ain't alleged anymore. Nah, nah. It's the craziest <laughs> argument happened. because everybody knew that it was Poland. There, there's uh, In the EU courts, uh, they've all done it. And, and there was some questioning of the advocate about this seems to be ridiculous because you're saying that it's still like a secret for the country. They'll be mad, but in their, in their own prosecution, they, they've made clear that they, uh, the black site, uh, but, but, um, and again, uh, we'll probably preview the prediction sure to go wrong. Reminder to, to the listeners, this is the ninth circuit. The ninth circuit went 13 and O on, re, on reversals last year or something like that, or 14 and O. So, if you were a betting person and you were going to bet on one case or any cases at the Supreme Court, if it's Ninth Circuit, it's getting reversed. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. This one, you know, we don't know. Well, this we don't know. This one, they, they may yeah. do okay on this one. Yeah. And one, one question I had and and, and uh, wasn't quite clear to me, Pat, is why this was in the Ninth Circuit to begin with. Uh, because that's where they could find the most favorable uh, circuit <laughs> courts. They found a judge. Well, actually, I can tell you why. I can't yeah. tell you why. Because I believe he was represented by because he's because he is a person without a state, he has been held in Guantanamo for over for over tw- almost tw- over twenty years now, and so the 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 his residency is where his the where his lawyer is. Okay, and so his lawyer. There was a similar case. It may be this case. I'm not. I, no, actually, no. That was Hamdi. Hamdi was represented by lawyers at Perkins Coy out of Seattle. Okay. And so that was filed in Seattle. It very well may be that his lawyer, whether it is a JAG officer or a pro bono a pro bono lawyer from a firm like Perkins Coy or maybe Perkins Coy itself, I don't know, or both are located somewhere in the vast Ninth Circuit because yeah. that's where the, the, the claim is brought, is okay. where the lawyer is. It's very unusual. Um, I, I was at an ABA conference six or seven years ago, and the lawyer from Perkins and his and the JAG officer who were representing Hamdi presented for about an hour and a half about the case. It was fascinating um, yeah. about how they got into the case and whatnot. Um, and Hamdi, as a case, actually comes up during this argument. Uh, he was uh, the driver for one of the uh, for for right. um, for Osama bin Laden at one point and was held in Guantanamo. And the subject of a habeas petition. Anyway, that's why I think it, yeah. that's that's okay. my guess as to why it was that that's potentially why where right. it was where it was. So in this case, the question is: What is the scope of the state secrets privilege for information that is hardly a secret? Um, and, and the court will decide that when it uh, decides this case. When captured, Zubeda was believed to be the third-ranking member of Al Qaeda. It turned out he was not, as the CIA did not realize he had a brother who went by the same name. They conflated the two. And, and so, and so what he was basically is they had they were tracking both the brother and Zubeda, and he was like a super terrorist. He was everywhere, doing everything, and all the times <laughs> they couldn't figure it out. Then, then later they figured out he had a brother <laughs> who right. had the same pseudonym. Right. 
And so one of the two places where he was held and interrogated was in Poland, and an investigator has asked for the testimony of two CAA contractors who have testified before in other cases uh, regarding what treatment he was subjected to between the dates he was held there before he was transferred to Thailand uh, for more in interrogation. The government has claimed that despite everyone knowing where he was held and when, that to allow the contractors to testify would uh, uh, violate state secrets by disclosing what was done to him during those times, as that would expose Polish allies to scrutiny. Um, and then uh, uh, the, there were a couple of podcasts, as I mentioned at the top, that Pat listened to, and I've listened to parts of them that really focus on the uh, uh, torture aspects. Um, and, this case and, isn't about torture. It is just, not. just as the last just, one isn't about abortion, this yep. one ain't about torture. <laughs> so, Pat, why don't you tell us about uh, oral argument in this case and, and some of the uh, interesting uh, turn of events and rebuttal? So, so let me let me kind of set up some more here. So, following nine eleven, you have the the CIA gets involved and they pick up Abu Zubaydah. They render him to. Poland. He's there for a period of time. They have these two contractors, one of whom's book I posted about this morning and Dan posted about this morning. And if you really want to understand what happened, you got to read the book and at least get his version of events. And right. then you can read the Senate report and get the opposite version of what happened. Right. Um, and so they know he was there during those dates. They just don't know what was done to him there in Poland, as opposed to what was done to him in Thailand. We know it was done. He was waterboarded something like 83 times and he was uh you know, all kinds of different things were done to him uh but we don't we don't know when they those things were done and where he was when those things were done and that's the key testimony so usually the the the, the United States Supreme Court is high level they're trying to just reach the big question not here so on rebuttal uh you're going to play the very beginning and we're going to play a bit of this so you can kind of get a flavor of justices from across the spectrum politically trying to get it. How do we resolve this question? How, how do we and, – and, and, and some trying to figure out how could we not address it at all. Um, and, and, and in some ways related to the hearsay things we talked about in the first case, this is actual uh, – someone that can actually testify as to things, right? The actual witness. Where were you when XYZ happened? And what so happened here we to him? Yep. Here we go. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Fletcher, I don't want to interrupt you later, so I'm just going to do it up front. Um, why not make the witness available? What is the government's objection to the witness testifying to his own treatment and not requiring any admission from the government of any kind? By the witness, you mean Abu Zubaydah, right? So I, I was going to address this point. It goes to Justice Breyer's question about the conditions of his confinement right now. He is not being held incommunicado. He is subject to the same restrictions that apply to other similar detainees at Guantanamo. His communications are subject to security screening for classified information and other security risks, but he's able to communicate with his lawyers about it. Yeah, that's not really answering my question, I don't think, because I understand there are all sorts of protocols that may or may not, in the government's view, uh, prohibit him from testifying. But I'm asking much more directly. 
the government make the petitioner available to testify on this subject? We would allow him to communicate about this subject under the same terms as on anything else. The same terms. Look, I don't understand why he's still there after 14 years. It's a little hard to give him handy. Uh, but assuming that isn't in this case, uh, why not do just what Justice Gorsuch says? Just say, hey, you want to ask what happened? Ask him what happened. And maybe this is special. So the, because the detainees at Guantanamo are all subject to a regime, a protective order in their hands. I'm not asking. I understand there are all sorts of rules and protective orders. I'm aware of that. I'm asking much more directly. And I just really appreciate a straight answer to this. Will the government make petitioner available to testify as to his treatment during these dates? I cannot offer that now because that's a request that has not been made. And so we have not taken that back to the folks at DOD. Well, this case has been litigated for years and all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And you haven't considered whether that's a off-ramp that, that the government could provide that would obviate the need for any of this. Well, Justice Gorsuch, we considered the request that was put before the district court in the Ninth Circuit under Section 1782. Our position as to all communications by Abu Zubaydah is that he can communicate subject to security screening, which would include, I, I just want to be clear, would include eliminating classified information. Which, so, which takes us right back to where we are. And, I, that, and, and it doesn't answer the question. And I, I guess, will the government at least commit to answering uh, informing this court whether it will or will not allow the petitioner to testify as to as to his treatment during these dates. If, if the court would like a direct answer to that question, of course, I personally would appreciate a direct answer to that question. Without the government invoking a state secret privilege to the testimony, inherent in the question is, are you going to let him testify as to what happened to him those dates? And, and I think the we would invoke the state secrets privilege always only over specific information, but I, will, I would tell you that whatever he proposes to do, we would want to apply the same sorts of screening that we're applying here to make sure that classified information is not released in the process of his testimony or in a real well, submission. You're, you're begging the question. I want, I think, Justice Gorsuch, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, we want a clear answer. Are you going to permit him to testify as to what happened to him those dates without invoking a state secret or other privilege? Yes or no? That's all we're looking for. Mr. Fletcher, you are here representing the government of the United States in a certain capacity. What do you understand to be the scope of your authority uh, as you stand before us here? to represent the legal position of the United States. But in doing that, it's important to me, as it always is, to make sure that I'm representing my clients with full consultation of what's being put before them. I understand the so question. To represent the, the interests of the United States with respect to what? With respect to all matters. Here are the matters directly. With respect to all matters? I thought it would be res with respect to this litigation. Correct. I'm sorry, Justice Leo. That's a, that's a better way to put it. You get done with that. Yeah. So, so that's exactly you. You get the full spectrum of left, right. You heard them all. They're all like, and, "Well, you just let the guy talk." And, and if you're that advocate on rebuttal, you you leave the the Supreme Court. You find the the nearest watering hole. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not his fault. No, I mean, no, but just it's brutal. But you know, if you're yeah, if you're he the got, advocate. You know, yeah, they you're, they you're running uphill the, and 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 yeah. you know. You got a thousand pound weight 
attached to your hips. Yeah. You know? he, he's, yeah. he's, he got it from all ends. That's on rebuttal. He steps up one to talk about certain things, and he just gets it right from the beginning. Here comes Gorsuch. Here comes Breyer. Now, Breyer's got the number wrong. It's yeah. 14 years the habeas petition's been, been pending. He's been there for 20 years, which leads me to this question. What classified information could he possibly have after being point? in a hole for the last 20 years? Right. I mean, really? What Are, are you kidding me? He's what, in Guantanamo. What, to, the extent, to the extent he had anything to begin with, which is a real issue, right. to the extent he had anything to begin with, I think after 20 years, his information's a little stale, you especially think? considering uh, Osama bin Laden is dead. Has been for a decade. As are most uh, of the other leaders from that time. As most of them are. Well, yeah. What could he possibly know about right. anything <laughs> at this point? Now, just now there, you might have heard last month there was also a change in some circumstances in, in Afghanistan, as it turns out. Uh, and it that doesn't change the government's position as to whether they're still at war with Al-Qaeda. No. Maybe, not, maybe not the Taliban, okay, but at least Al-Qaeda. And so therefore, his detention is still proper. And at least at one point during the argument, you heard a bit of that in the bit I just played from Justice Breyer. It's like, why is this guy still being held? What what, what are you yeah. doing? Uh, yeah. wh- why is this person still in custody? And as you also heard, the justices really focused on the question, what happened to you between those dates? Now, I will say this, how in the devil is he supposed to know where he was and what day it was when they were waterboarding him, holding him uh, incommunicado in a room with no light sometimes, with loud music to torture him, sticking dogs on him. And as you hear in one of the podcasts, if you, if, you, if you listen to one of the podcasts, the guy really doesn't like bugs, so they put him in a coffin with a bunch of roaches. So I, I really got an idea that this guy doesn't know much about what happened to him when. I'm quite certain he knows what happened to him, but when it happened and where he was when that happened, which is the relevant question, I'm not sure he can answer. But as Justice Gorsuch pointed out, that is an off-ramp for the government if they want to take it. Right. Um, and <laughs> it is it is quite the case. Um, and the let's I, I've been critical of the government, so let's give the government at least what its its argument is. Its argument is that we made the, the, that we. The government made certain commitments to its Polish friends to assist us in, and assist them in setting up this site and doing these things after 9-11. And that in disclosing this information, they are subject to both European uh, Human Rights Commission uh, sanction as well as Polish government sanction uh, for these things. And if we disclose what happened and when, that will disclose them subject them to um, criminal co- criminal sanction perhaps and yep. who's going to believe when the, the when the American government tells them and the, tells people in the future that we'll protect you because when the when the chips were down they didn't that's the government's argument uh, on the state secrets and that's why we were worried about when did it occur that's why they don't care about Thailand because apparently there's no similar thing going on in Thailand in terms of right. some prosecutor trying to get this information. And that's how this comes up. Um, this was this comes this 1782 request is a request that came from the foreign government to the United States to make these people available to testify. Um, uh, Mitchell and his partner, whose name escapes me at this point, yep. and so th- th- that's you kind of understand this crazy case. And what you'll hear about in the media, I imagine a lot, is about torture, and the case ain't about torture. It's, it's about not. something far more bizarre. Uh, 
<laughs> and as I mentioned, a couple podcasts that Pat referred me to, that they focus on the torture elements. And again, this is not about torture. It's it's not about torture. It's about the relationships with foreign countries and state secrets and 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 those deals and and assurances, as Pat said, that we give to people in various conflict situations. All right. So with that, let's bring us to our prediction. Sure to go wrong. Uh, Hemphill, I think I already said what I think. Uh, I think the petitioner is going to win and win big. Dan? Yeah, I think that's right. I think if you listen to that case, I think that's right. So, And then uh, Cameron versus EMW, uh, do you think they're going to get past the jurisdictional argument? I do. I, I think they will, just because I think it's an important enough issue. And I think the way Breyer was talking about the practicality, but you may be right. Um, so I guess we can make a two-prong prediction, you know. Yeah, I'll make one. We're going to split because I, yeah. I don't think I don't think they're going to get past the jurisdictional argument because I don't think they want to make the other argument. I don't think they want to reach the other issue. If they can escape, that's that's I think that's what they're going to do. If they can if they can punt, they Maybe. love to punt. Yeah. Uh, um. They they are like uh they're like the special teams of the of the Supreme Court. They they like to punt. I have often referred to them as the Ray Guy Lifetime Achievement Award for punning, uh, because <laughs> exactly they are right. they are great punters. Yeah, they are. This is and, a, uh, this is an opportunity. And as you, and in case you didn't, in case you missed it, at least four of the justices were trying to punt there in Zubeda. Hey, right. can you just punt this? Send this away. We don't want to deal with this stuff. Uh, yep. Can you just make this guy available? Because that's as hard as a, as the Supreme Court can push a, uh, an advocate to do something. Yeah, because they don't get. To, I mean. You know, when you're in when you're in a circuit court or a district court, the the judge sees you a lot, and they can put a lot of leverage on you. Right. It's hard to put leverage. You know, when you you never see each other except for one time at oral argument. This was their chance. They were acting very much like a trial judge would in putting pressure on an advocate to put pressure on their client to do what they want them to do, which is make this guy available and make this case go away. Please, this is what we're asking you to do. I also I also read into some of that is is that again twenty years into Guantanamo that the court is is you know would like to not have more Guantanamo cases on kind of the sick of these coming cases. forward right and so let's let's like you said let's clean up and let's you know ask these people what they know and and, and they don't know uh, diddle and then we we can just move on because this is you know because the they- courts got bigger things to do. They also see that the habeas petition is moving its way up to up to them again, right. and, and as was articulated during the argument, there's a there's the, the habeas petition is being briefed again, and that could reach them again, and so they really right. don't want to deal with that. No. Um, so yeah, I, I think the government, if they they do reach the merits, this isn't going to go well for the government. Um, I agree. They're going to make not, those two guys testify. Yeah, and I'm not sure they'll get to the merits, but yeah, if they get to the merits, it, it's it's. Uh, those guys are going to testify, and they may remand it to to instruct that the witness himself actually testify as well. I don't know if they can compel that, but we'll see. Uh, well, they they can. I don't know. We'll see. All right. So there were no cases decided this week that we've discussed. No. Which which brings us to our um, our rule of the week. Uh, Dan, why don't you tell us about the rule of the week? Sure. And the rule of the week we picked is on local rules and standing orders, which are very important and must be filed. It came up in the Sarnoff case that Pat may, Pat and I may or may not cover. Uh, another uh, very interesting case, if you if you listen to it, uh, Sarnoff is going to have his, his death penalty reinstated, I think, from the from the tea leaves of, of, of the court. You don't think so? I, th- I think it's 
I, 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 well, they, this, they had... this is this is the arises out of the Boston Marathon bombing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so another terrorism case, terrorism tangential case, um, yep. ter- terrorism adjacent, uh, and the yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly there are three that do not want to overturn that want to leave the leave it the way it is. Yeah, it seems to me. But you're but right. I, but I think just the, the overall tone seemed to be. But in any event, um, uh, the, these local rules and standing orders are very important. We've talked about the Seventh Circuit and Northern District of Illinois. Um, especially with pro se litigants coming into court more and more uh, at all levels of, of our court systems. And if you, uh, these are important rules, um, the standing orders and local rules of, of, of your local court. Uh, we've talked about some of these before on some of the other cases we've covered in the uh, 58 prior episodes. But if you fail to follow the exact notice requirements that are required under these standing orders and local rules, you might might have your motion denied or appeal bounced. Pat, thoughts on this important thing is so one of the at the tail end of his career, Judge, Judge Posner of the Seventh Circuit was very much solicitous of pro se litigants, and there was an amendment. I don't know if he was the progenitor of it, but it certainly happened uh, in the Seventh Circuit, and then also in the local rules of the Northern District regarding notices with regards to motions for summary judgment in the district court and appeal issues with regards to matters before the Seventh Circuit. And I had a a former colleague of mine who got an appeal, lost an appeal because proper notice of the motion for summary judgment for the district court wasn't given. They didn't even reach the merits. So you didn't give proper notice of your cases, you you lose. Go back and do it again. So they take these things very seriously. Um, The local rules are not mere suggestions. You need to know what they are. Um, And they have the force of law. Uh, so you, uh, yep. one of the questions in the Sarnayev case is what is the supervisory rule that the first district has imposed with regards to jury selection in high profile cases and in particular capital cases? That's really the question, right? Is what is this thing? Uh, and did they, um, uh, there's two questions and one of them is about the jury questioning. The other question is about some crazy hearsay evidence that came in. Uh, or didn't come in, I should say, about the conduct of the uh, of of the brother. So, yep. uh, but local rules, read them, know them, live them, love them. Uh, and uh, with that, uh, Dan, another uh, another great show, and we'll be yep. back next week with another episode, episode sixty of the Podium and Panel Podcast. And it was. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.